Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, where we'll be doing an in-depth structured analysis of Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicles. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. A quick note before we begin. When we started this podcast, which you are now listening to episode one of, we had no idea what we were doing, and we were very brand new at this. So episode one, this one, is a little bit rough. Sounds a bit scripted. Sounds like we're still finding our footing. Because we were. We promise you, it gets better though. I think we really started to find our footing around episode three or so, and then it kind of fell into a groove that felt a little more natural. By the time that we hit episode eight, which is still my favorite, I think we got into the groove that we kept going on through the end of The Name of the Wind. This is a message from the future, because at this point, we are about to record episode 34. We definitely have a better routine and a better rapport and a more easygoing actual conversation going forward. For those of you who stick around, thank you. Please enjoy our very, very rough episode one. The current plan is that at the end of The Name of the Wind, we're going to go back and make a new version of this that you can listen to after we've made it through the whole book and see how much we've improved. And we'll also sort of talk about how we started to maybe see things differently based on what we know now versus what we knew then. So anyway, please enjoy this very beginning first thing that we ever recorded. And until next time, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode one, a beginning in three parts, where we will be talking about the prologue through chapter two of Patrick Rothfuss's Name of the Wind through a lens of negative space. Each week, we'll be examining a section of the books through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenemos of the week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact of the week. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the text and our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, Pat, if you're listening and you'd like us to be affiliated with you, operators are standing by. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're one of those weird folks who doesn't mind having crucial plot details from the future revealed to you ahead of time like some mad fortune teller. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Also, a word to our community. It is perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it. That said, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. Alright, so we realize that sometimes it's going to be a little while since the last time you read this. So, to help you out, we are going to trade off doing a 45 second recap of the section of the book that we are reading. That's right, and if the recapper can't keep it under 45 seconds, there's gonna be a punishment. In the spirit of keeping this fun, 
we've decided that our punishments are going to be something that we've argued about for the entirety of our relationship. That's right. We're going to go back to the dawn of our relationship and one of our earliest disagreements, namely over which fruits are good and which ones are garbage. So what Will means to say is that he hasn't eaten a cherry since he was eight years old, but he has vehemently argued that cherries are horrible. That's right. Eight-year-old me was very mature for his age. <laughs> Meanwhile, Phoenix cannot stand raspberries for some unknowable reason. Some of us know what we don't like. And... I do keep trying to eat them. They're just, ew. I trust eight-year-old me. He was a wise soul. So it's my turn this week. I'm a little nervous. Now you'll be fine. <laughs> All right, do you have a timer set up? Timer is ready. In three, two, one... Go. The story opens in a silent inn, the Waystone, which is devoid of music, conversation, and anything else that you would expect from an inn in a fantasy novel. We are introduced to the red-haired innkeeper, and in some of the book's most poetic prose, learn that he is waiting to die. We're then introduced to the Waystone's normal crowd of five patrons. One is telling stories to the other. Halfway through the stories, a man rushes in carrying a huge dead spider creature that he says killed his horse. Everyone but the innkeeper, who calls himself Coat, think that this is a demon. Later that night, we learn that Coat actually knows what this is, a scrailing, information that freaks out his assistant Bast. In the next chapter, we meet Chronicler, a scribe who is being civilly robbed by a group of ex-soldiers. Stop. I made it! You made it in 43 seconds, just under the wire. But I made it! You made it. <laughs> no raspberries for me! I don't see why that's so bad. Alright, there's a little note before we get into this. The main character of the story's name is Kvoth. But in the parts where he is at the Waystone, he calls himself Coat. That being said, most of the time we are going to be calling him Kvoth or using Coat and Kvoth interchangeably. All right, so today we're talking about this section through the lens of negative spaces I set up above. Negative space is the space defined by that which surrounds it rather than that which fills it, by what it's not rather than what it is. In many ways, the King Killer Chronicles has to accomplish its task by telling us what it isn't. We expect a traditional epic fantasy, but the story subverts those expectations even as it, and the characters within it, tell us repeatedly that this isn't like most stories. The characters in these books are often defined by the holes in their lives, and it was something that really jumped out at us when we first read the books, and we'd like to share our thoughts with you. We're first introduced to the story in the form of silence. And what is silence except the negative space within noise, the absence of noise? You start with the most obvious part, which was the hollow, echoing quiet made by things that were lacking. And hey, there's our theme right there. It specifically draws attention to the lack of music. In a medieval inn, that would be something that one would expect most nights is some form of music to make people feel at home. And even in a contemporary restaurant, you're typically having some form of music played over the PA, even if it's just very thin and light. Think about how many times you've played D&D &D and it starts in an inn. And the image that comes to your mind is always one where it's raucous, there's laughter, there's music, there's storytelling. And this is very somber. We're mostly told about what's not there as opposed to what is actually there. 
were even told through the lens of a conversation with two people that they are having a conversation around what their topic is. They don't want to discuss certain things. And that is leaving a negative space where that conversation should be happening. We don't even know what they're talking about. All we know is what they're not talking about. They're sitting there drinking with quiet determination, avoiding serious discussions of troubling news, which forms a second silence there, where you have essentially a negative conversational space. I don't know if you've ever had friends like this, where you talk about everything but what's important. Oh, yeah. It's frustrating because that's just not who I am. I'm very blunt and direct. One of my dearest friends and I, we talk about everything but what's important to us. That's how we get to what's important to us. We end up circling it a lot. It's been our way for years, but it is a kind of silence, those things left unsaid. And it makes me uncomfortable. I can accept that. And then we come to our third silence here, which is that of the innkeeper himself, which is the sound of a man who is waiting to die. And we don't know why. We don't know anything about this. And death itself is like the ultimate negative space. You know, if you think about it, the state of not being is actually far more common than being. How do you think this did as a introduction to the story? It immediately set in motion that there's going to be sort of a darkness to this. There's something unsettling and uncanny about it. And as somebody who's read all the way through both of the main books, do you think we ever really got an answer as to why he's waiting to die? I don't think we know just yet, although I think we've been given hints. I think we don't know the specifics. I think we have some ideas. And they may or may not be accurate. And really, when you look at any story, it's not necessarily going to telegraph exactly what's going to happen, but it should be foreshadowing so that when the twist happens, it makes sense. It's the difference between Bruce Willis being dead in Sixth Sense and <laughs> aliens are allergic to water. Right. One of them is surprising, but fits within the world as it's defined. The other one is just a thing that comes out of nowhere and doesn't really fit with anything else that the film is trying to say. It's absurd. That was the prologue. Do you have any ideas? I love that the language is so poetic in that it says the cut flower sound. What does that mean to you? The description is so poetic. It's talking about this cut flower sound of a man waiting to die. What does cut flower mean to you? It does mean an absence. It means that beauty that was the wildness of the flower is now being reined in. It is now being taken away from the nature of everything and brought into a home, into something to bring that to you. But at the same time, it, it lowers the life expectancy of said flowers. They're going to die. There's a patience that's mm -hmm. happening at the end of this. Kind of like someone has taken in a breath and is waiting to let it out. And I do think that we haven't quite gotten to an explanation of why yet. Then we come to the first chapter, A Place for Demons. And it starts off with your crowd of five, which isn't much. With five people, you might occasionally get someone talking over another person, or you might have two separate conversations happening or side conversations happening, but you can also have somebody leading this conversation and four people who are rapt attention facing towards him. 
which is what is happening at this point. Old yeah. Cobb is telling a story. He's our storyteller and advice giver. Whether that advice is minded is a completely separate matter. He seems like a very crotchety old man. He really does. And granted, in a medieval setting, old man is like 45. And then in the back, we have the innkeeper standing out of sight behind the door. They very clearly call out that the innkeeper is young. And that's something that keeps coming back, is that he's younger than he looks. He's younger than he seems. He's younger than anything that we would expect. As Coat, he seems older and there are lines on his face, but we don't know how old he is in this moment. There is an absence of age. So then we get into our story about Taverlin the Great. The first thing that we're told about him is the tools that he doesn't have. His key, his coin, and his candle. These are all fairly mundane objects in and of themselves, right? But in the context of a story, they're kind of mystical items. Well, they'd have to be. Otherwise, it's like... Well, Why even mention it? I looked at my pockets and I couldn't find the pocket lent. So now we still have our keys in our pocket and we have our coins in our pocket if we have coins. But we have access to money in our pockets. And we also have a candle usually in the form of a cell phone. But keys, wallet, cell phone is a common thing that we're looking for. As all this is happening, we're having our listeners, not just the storyteller, but the story audience. We're also told what they don't pay attention to, which mm -hmm. is advice. But they do pay attention to the story. Stories are more useful than a didactic monologue anyway. It's a lot easier to put yourself into a practical situation like you would see, for instance, in the Grim Fairy Tales, where they're providing life lessons in the form of a fantasy, but at the same time, the actual lessons are very strong. Instead of just telling the kids, don't do these things, they gave a story for this is why you don't do these things. And a story is a good way to insert yourself into a world and figure out how you would handle something. It sounds like Old Cobb gives unsolicited advice. He probably does. He's a lonely man. There may be a reason for that. What I also find interesting is that Patrick Rothfuss uses a storyteller to get his audience into the story he is telling. And we learn throughout the two books that Taberlin the Great is this mythical person. I see him sort of like a cross between a wizard and a trickster. The characters are telling a story to make the world seem real. So there are a couple of things that you have pointed out to me in the past when we've discussed this. It's pointed out that one of the audience members is the Smith's Prentice. And for the longest time, he doesn't have a name. He's the only one in that crowd of five without a name. He's just the Smith's Apprentice or boy. Or that Rannish boy. We later find out is named Aaron. But I don't even remember if that's in the first book at all. I think it might be in the second. I think it is. I'm fascinated by him because he's the only one that actually seems to be listening critically to the story. He's the one who identifies the Chandrian based on the blue flame. In this instance, the Chandrian are very pointedly, but also kind of casually pointed out in the story. We don't know right now, three or four pages into the book, what's going to ultimately be 
the overarching theme of the book. We don't know that they're going to be having Coat talk about his time as Kvothe in the past. We don't know any of this. We don't have a reason to pick up on certain tells, but it's very clearly telegraphed or lampshaded that the Chandrian are a thing. We're just given this proper noun that we don't know what it means. It's our first really generic fantasy proper noun. Well, that and Taberlin. Later on, we get what they're not. We know that they're not demons, according to some people. They're the six people who refuse the choice of the path, and this is our first mention of Telu. And the religion of the world. But we don't know what that path is. All we know is that whatever it is, apparently, some people believe the Chandrian are not on it. And it's the path is in, like, capital P, path. So we know that there is a significance somewhere, but we don't know what that is. They're almost like how people talk about Lovecraft's elder gods, where you don't know exactly what their aims are. We just know they're bad. But we don't know what they actually are, because their motives are unknowable. And at this point, we actually know, having foreknowledge from the stories, that the Chandrian are so very, very guarded. There aren't written accounts other than in children's stories. There aren't spoken accounts other than in rhyme. And we don't know why. We can kind of infer from some of the things that we learned from the Adem and from other bits of the story that they are scrubbed a bit from history so that they don't have targets. They listen for people who speak their names. And if you say it more than once, you're pretty much saying Bloody Mary into a mirror three times. At least that's the belief that people have about them. What's interesting, though, also is how many things that you can look in just that very beginning and realize that there's negative space around it. Jake has finished his drink already, so he has an empty glass. Cobb is a lifetime bachelor, which means he has no spouse, so he's defined by what he isn't. And then he finishes his meal quickly so that he can fill his negative space with more story. In the story, Taberlin's cell has no door and no window, and it kind of reminds me also of Elodin. Now, forgive me, dear audience, if I say Elodin, because I've mostly listened to the book rather than reading it, and the reader says Elodin, and so I might switch back and forth. So most of my pronunciations are going to be close to what Patrick Rothfuss actually pronounces things as, but a lot of them are probably going to be influenced by the reader of the audiobooks. He's in a cell with no door or windows, and Elodin has previously been in a place locked away because he's viewed as insane. And it says all around him was nothing. There's a whole lot of negative space right there. Nothing but smooth, hard stone that no one had ever escaped. And this is also our first mention of how knowing a name will give someone power over a thing. He said to the stone break, and it broke. Cobb brings up the fact that Taberlin had an amulet. The way that it is described sounds like what is later described as a gram, which protects the wearer from magical attacks. Malfeasance. Which is somebody using sympathy to harm the person that is protected by said gram. It seems weird for me that they emptied out his pockets of his, his key keys, and his, his coins and his candle, but... This magical amulet, I don't worry about it. It's probably nothing. He got it from the tinker on the road. Now, 
this is not strictly negative space related, but I gotta say the Tinkers have really done a good job of selling the stories of themselves. Okay, always be nice to Tinkers. Everybody knows this. They have the best PR people ever. This is probably the first time that Coat yeah. has spoken to the group in anything other than a service-oriented way. And he's proving that he's actually been listening because the crowd have people saying things that are slightly different about how Tinkers pay for kindness twice. And we'll probably see this coming throughout the course of this where we have, it's in threes, which is sort of like that magic number. Silence in three parts. It's three times to get it right, basically. There's the first attempt. Everyone knows a Tinker pays for kindness twice. Strike one. Attempt number two, get it right, a tinker's advice pays kindness twice. Also, not quite right. And then on the third time, mm -hmm. the third time is when they got it right. A tinker's debt is always paid once for any simple trade, twice for freely given aid, thrice for any insult made. So again, that's the, the threes. Keep an eye out for that. I think it's just an interesting little stylistic thing. Threes, fives, and sevens. <laughs> Those are the ones you see a lot of these magic prime numbers. I love that it starts out with a story, and I also love that it doesn't get so far down the road of story that there's nowhere out of it, because bam, Carter bangs the door open, and he's holding this horse blanket that's in odd angles, and he's covered in blood. It interrupts the story, it cuts everything short. It stops the path that we think that we're on, which is essentially just a whole bunch of people talking about this legend and instantly makes you record scratch, and now you're focused on this thing. What's wrong with this person? Is he hurt? Is he dying? What the hell is in that horse blanket? The description of it is almost like a bundle of razor blades and sticks, a lifeless, inanimate, black spider that the size of a dog. It's almost like it's this spider-shaped hole in the world. It's gray on the inside. It's got cracks. Uh, apparently the horse fell on it before it died. All of a sudden, everyone notices what's going on and they just get quiet. Instead of it being a hustle and bustle and try to figure out what the heck and everyone talking over each other, they're all just quiet. Of course, first Cobb misidentifies the source of the blood, thinking that, oh, he got jumped by bandits or cut purses or what have you. Then he shows his black as slate spider, large as a wagon wheel. So even bigger than a dog. I can do without ever meeting one of these. I don't like regular sized spiders. I really don't like the idea of one that is as big as a wagon wheel and made out of razor blades and negative space and paint. Well, and then we have the innkeeper's interjection about it. They can't have made it this far west yet. Clearly he knows what they are. We don't know exactly where he is. West of what? If you look at the map at the beginning of the book, in the edition that I have, the town where everything is taking place, where the Waystone is, isn't actually defined. It doesn't show up on the map. I'm looking in a copy of the paperback edition, and I do not see Noir listed. It's in this sort of weird geographical negative space. So then all we know it's west of something. We don't know how far west or anything. We're given our first little cardinal direction. We know that the people, Cobb especially, are very superstitious. And everything that is not understood couldn't possibly be anything 
natural, it's always going to be a demon. And there are ways to take care of demons, including touching iron to it, which is where we first get our explanation of the currency system in the story. It's not talking about it as though it were currency. It talks about it as though it were objects made out of iron. And there's an in-depth conversation to be had about what a drab is and what a jot is. We will be talking about drabs and jots and the ledger. Oh, lot. <laughs> lot. <laughs> Stay tuned. I promise you. If you're waiting for an exciting discussion of the currency of the land, it'll happen. Exciting is relative. Anyway, another time that we're brought to this calling out of negative space is that there is an expectation that stories do not happen here. Stories happen out there. They don't happen in here. Things like this are abnormal. And ultimately, no one besides the six people in the end, seven people in the end, ever really truly believe that this is a thing that has happened. I guess there's actually eight, because if you count Bast, because Bast believes later. So what they do is use iron to try to verify that this thing is actually dead. We don't know what iron is supposed to be doing to it. We get the impression that both has a reason to stick iron on it that isn't because he thinks it's a demon, but we don't know what that is. And it seems like he trusts in science more than superstition or religion. He also gets a little perturbed by the idea that the name of God will banish whatever this thing is. And then we're kind of hand-waved away what happens at the end of this. And we see Quoth standing in the doorway of his inn as everybody leaves. And I really like the turn of phrase where there's footprints of lamplight from the inn's windows. I like the language around there. It's almost like the inside of the inn is spilling outward. He also very clearly states that names are important, which is something that we definitely get as the stories progress. He called himself Code, and that already starts to tell us a little bit about Quoth. The things that aren't there tell us a lot about what should be there. He talks about how he'd taken the name specifically because it was something that he would answer to. So if someone calls it in a bar, you'll answer to it, as opposed to having to think, oh wait, yes, that's my name. And we're also introduced to this void of a person that Cote is compared to right. Quoth. These blank spaces in him are huge. I've made this point to you before, but I think that it's interesting how any time that he is very clearly Cote, he looks older. He has lines on his face. He seems diminished somehow but when he starts waking up it doesn't say that it's almost like the lines disappeared it says the lines disappear he goes and he polishes the bottles full of liquid that are on his bar and he starts humming and we know how important music is to Quoth. when we've got that visceral tactile memory coming back it's like the shade of coat disappears and you see Quoth coming back. And it makes me wonder, because there's a later passage where he's asking Elodin, what would you say of a girl who changed their name? And Elodin freaked out. Why would someone do that? What has someone done? Did Quoth change his name to Coat? 
capital C change the name and not just, oh, I'm calling myself this now. Is Coat a cover for him? Is Foth going to come back? And we also understand that in further places in the story, Bast is trying to get him to remember all of the good things about being Foth. Is he trying to break the shell that is Coat? Coat feels, again, like sort of this placeholder of a person. We expect a person to be there, and so we kind of just paper over that and say, yep, there's a person there. But there's not a whole lot there there. This little section talks about names. It talks about the names of the stars. And it also calls out that there is no moon. And something that is a recurring thing in the story is the moon. So Mm -hmm. much so that in the second book, there is a whole story about someone who tried to capture the moon. And there's also when Florian says that the moon spends some of its time or some of her time in the Fey world. So I find it interesting that there is no moon tonight. Coat at this time wants to distance himself from the stars in the night. So then they get into a description of his living quarters. They describe it as monkish, which I thought was really interesting from a negative space perspective. That right there describes it as something defined by a lack of things, a lack of adornment, a lack of excess comfort, purposefully blank so that you can contemplate on things that aren't there, so that you're not distracted by what is there. Within the room, there is the one person that I would say never really allows for negative space, and that would be Bast. I think Bast just fills everything as he's in a space. He's chatting up a storm with Coat. He's talking about what's up with the Skrail. Why Mm -hmm. are they here? But he also calls Coat Reshi. And I don't think he ever calls Coat or Kvoth Coat. That makes me also think that part of the reason that Bast is here is to bring him back to or be a lifeline for Kvoth. I'm very interested in the relationship between Bast and Kvoth. You're right, it has interesting parallels. In our negative space, Bast fills the negative space that Kvoth leaves in the conversations. He's verbose, he's chatty, kind of irreverent. Kind of irreverent. He's also kind of a skirt chaser. A little bit. He's boisterous. I wonder what their relationship actually is. There's been lots of theories. There's been theories that he's Kvoth's son. There is theories that he's Kvoth's lover. Any number of things. What we do know about him is that he is from the Fey world. And we have another character that is very clearly from the Fey that is Felorian. But we also have the Cathay. And so we don't know what Bast is an agent of, if he's an agent of himself, if he's an agent of Florian, if he's an agent of Chaos for chaos's sake, if he's an agent of the Cathay. In the conversation with Bass, they're calling out how nowhere cannot be protected by its citizens. There are no swords. There are no fighters. They have iron bars, but they don't really have any skilled person that could willingly kill another person. It's a very provincial backwater. Talking also about Bast, we're told not what he reads, but what he didn't get around to reading. <laughs> there is a Kellum Tinture shaped hole in his reading list. That tells us a lot about him. It's clear that there's a teacher-student relationship, and it's clearly a very affectionate one. But Bast is maybe not always the most strictly dutiful <laughs> following that. There's another thing that he says 
that I didn't pick up on when I was listening to the book, but that I picked up on when I reread it. And he says something, and forgive me, I'm probably going to butcher this, but Aroite Denelayan. There is a character named Dena that we will get into as the books progress, who is complicated. And the beginning of Denelayan is Dena. I wanted to put a pin in that. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the words mean because he just fits them back at Bass while they're having a bantering situation. Bass is like, hey, that's insulting. I think that's an interesting thing to put a pin in. And it has both trying out a bunch of magic words that apparently actually don't really do anything. They're all the equivalent of abracadabra. Be gone, demon. He's flinging little droplets of cider on Bast and tehus and tausa eha. Having no other effect other than just annoying Bass and saying, oh, now I'm going to have to wash this out. It's better not stain. Coat comes back with the great zinger. Well, if you'd read Kellum Tinture, chapter 13, you'd know about the various solvents, how to fix this. All we know now about the book that Bass didn't want to read is that it tells him how to do his laundry. After Bass leaves, and he leaves kind of this void of busyness and of boisterousness, it's mentioned that the lamplights in this room are blocking out the outside. Within this very small room, there aren't that many objects, but there is one that Kvothe is trying so very hard not to look at. Right. But it's drawing his eye. And it's this chest. And the conscious effort to not look at it is making it harder for him to not look at it. <laughs> it's like, don't think about a pink elephant in the corner of your room. Damn it. <laughs> that chest, of course, is sealed three times. And it has a lock of iron, a lock of copper, and a lock that is unseen. We assume that it is the lackless box that is referred to and introduced in the second book. Described slightly differently than that box was. We're also believing that it is an ancient box, but it still fills the space of the room with a citrusy aroma. An almost imperceptible aroma. It almost makes me think that it could be psychosomatic. It's colorless, odorless, and tasteless. <laughs> Iocane powder. I'd stake my life on it. <laughs> Looking at the chest actually erases a lot of the transformations that we had seen when Quoth was humming mm -hmm. to himself. All the lines come back on his face. He looks like the weight of the world has come back on his shoulders. And we're given emptiness and ache is the description. Again, more of that negative space. And after this, flashes forward to the next night, and we get our first mention of the penitent king. Which the audience, we still don't know, after having read through everything, who the penitent king is. We can guess, but we don't know. We don't even know who the king that was killed, or if a king was killed, to make the King Killer Chronicles. Gossip and rumor and speculation are serving as news, and that actual news is not forthcoming. And then when we're told about a merchant coming to town, we're not told what the merchant was carrying, we're told what he didn't have. He had no pepper, he had no cinnamon, he didn't have any chocolate, and what he does have, people don't have the money to pay. Our normal crowd of five people have come back, and they seem like they're a little more wary of everything they aren't talking about what happened last night but they each have gone to the smith and gotten iron 
which I assume is going to use it as a cudgel if they ever have to use it. Or all-impaling rebar. The one other thing that gets talked about before we switch, there's talk of a person called Crazy Martin who tried to dig a well in his own house. He's basically creating negative space in his floor (laughs) (laughs) by doing that. But we don't have any idea why and why that was really brought up. The other thing that happened to be mentioned right before the end of the chapter is that three years ago, no one would need to lock their doors at night. Or we understand that the end of all of both's adventures happened three years ago. We know that he has owned the inn for about a year now. But we don't know what the catalyst for everyone needing to lock their doors is. We're just understanding that the world has gotten darker. There's unrest. There's this repetition of a phrase. None of them said what they were thinking. It's repeated twice. It was also at the beginning of the book, the, the prologue. None of them are saying what they're thinking. So you have sort of this void of truth. So we put a pin on that, figure out what they're thinking going forward. And as we go into chapter two, a beautiful day. The first thing that I noticed in chapter two is we're given a half dozen ex-soldiers defined more by what they used to be than what they are. Given the behavior, they seem more like what we would call bandits or highwaymen. They are stealing from the next character that we get introduced to. Chronicler is a very interesting character. They are taking his horse. They are taking his salt, his tinderbox, his bootlaces, his shirt. He didn't even have a chance to wear it yet. Oh. So he is being defined by what he no longer has. We find out that he is a scribe by him telling the soldiers or the ex-soldiers how it's not of any use to them. Nothing but paper and pens. These particular robbers are defying expectation a little bit. They're being very polite while still not letting him have his own stuff. They're not good, but they're nice. I wouldn't call them nice. I'd call them polite. There's a difference between being polite and being nice. They aren't hurting him. They're just taking everything from him. Another thing that happens is... Chronicler actually asks to keep some of his money. That's not something that normally happens when you're being robbed. Hey, can I keep a little bit so that I can not starve? And they actually acquiesce and give him two coins back. It's not like we're going to just be jerks to you, but we're going to do what we want anyway. They're not going to let doing the right thing get in the way of getting what they need or want. After they leave, he waits for a while And then he just refills his purse from a hidden stash. He laments the loss of his shirt. But it makes me wonder, how often is he robbed? How often are people robbed in this time? We know that in previous times where there has been travel, there's not been mention of highwaymen or robberies in terms of just a routine, take all your stuff. The fact that Chronicler has this many fail-safes in place Not for in case he gets robbed, but But for for when when he gets robbed. He treats this as just the cost of doing business, almost. It also makes me wonder who is funding this trip. Like, how well off is Chronicler? And then there's mention of Scarpy, who we have heard of in future parts of the book, specifically in Tarbian. He's still kind of this mystery. We don't know enough about Scarpy to really have 
any information about Scarpy other than he has told stories to Kvothe about things to do with the Chandrian or at least with Lanray. Scarpy seems to know more than the rest of the world. He's a fount of knowledge and I think Chronicler, as we see him, fancies himself that way as well. One of the things that fascinates me at the end of the chapter, Chronicler found himself feeling remarkably lighthearted, which strikes me as the absence of heaviness, like the negative space where he's light. He's carefree, he's moving on, and we don't actually know what his ultimate goal is. I don't know that we ever really find out if he wanted to go this direction because he heard rumors that Kvothe was there in Noir, or if he's actually going on past there to try to get a story from another person. His motives are still undefined. So now we can talk about how this relates to negative space in our lives. Negative space, it can be useful. It has a place. It represents the start of wisdom rather than the end. If you don't know what something is, you can at least take solace in what it isn't. It leaves room for contemplation, having a void of excess noise, having a void of negative emotions, or just emotion in general. If you look at meditating, there is something to be said about letting everything that is filling every nook and cranny and letting that just flow out and go for a while. And having an absence of the noise of every day-to-day thing can bring peace. But there's a flip side to this of just blocking everything out and being uninformed, which does nobody any good. Sometimes when you define yourself exclusively by what you aren't, you oftentimes aren't doing the work to actually define what you are. I don't like this. I don't like that. But what do you like? On the flip side, when someone says, I don't know what I want, sometimes saying, what don't you want, can also help you to at least get things started in the other direction. This is something that you do a lot with me is, hey, what would you like me to pick up for dinner? And I say, I really don't know. And you're like, well, what don't you want? (laughs) If I pick something up and you don't want it, this isn't going to go well. If you're just saying, eh, whatever, you don't really mean whatever. (laughs) By not saying something, I am saying something different. So at a certain point, it is helpful to have those bounds. It makes it a little easier. And on a more serious note, you run a risk if you're doing just the negative space definition of things. You can create a vacuum that can be filled with just about anything. If you are a completely blank slate and have no defining of what you are, people can assume anything from you. In that case, they're assuming that they can ask anything of you and you'll just say yes, or that they can assign a personality to you. And the reality is that we are not silent protagonists in our own story. We have opinions. They might not be popular opinions. We also might not have an opinion about a specific thing, but we have a personality. We have something that is part of us to assume that everybody around you is full of this negative space is to also take away their humanity. It makes it very easy to turn them into a cardboard cutout. I think that that's what Coat is. I think that he is essentially an avatar that has no real personality of his own. 
And I don't think that that can be kept up for very long, especially as we know who Kvothe is. He's trying to turn himself into an NPC who goes about repeating the scripted, I'm an innkeeper here script. <laughs> That's why he goes through the motions of cleaning the inn when there's nothing to be cleaned. And also why it's such a shock to his patrons when he actually speaks. Because they expect that he's not going to, he's still a stranger. He doesn't have opinions, he doesn't have thoughts, he doesn't have... He doesn't have knowledge. He's created this image of nothing, of a not person. So this section of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about a character within the story who fulfills the role of a phronemos. In my past life, when I was a philosophy student, I read a lot of Aristotle. And Aristotle defines the phronemos as the practically wise person. This is how you learn to practice virtue. You find someone to emulate. So in this section, we're going to find a character who we think is providing an example of practical wisdom. So we'll be switching off every other week. My example this week is going to be Chronicler. Chronicler is one of my favorite characters, even though mostly what he's there to do is to be the guy who listens and provides the contrary opinion. That doesn't remind me of anyone, no. I empathize with him a lot. <laughs> I look at the way that he handles the encounter with the bandits, or the ex-soldiers as they prefer to think of themselves. He doesn't get overly heated about it. He handles it with a little bit of cleverness, and we learn a little bit about him as a person. He is someone who is prepared more than anything else. This is someone who is prepared for a rough traveling life even if he doesn't necessarily look it. But he is prepared for adversity, and he's also prepared to deal with it in ways that don't necessarily mean meeting out violence. Oftentimes, when people think about being prepared for survival, they think of, okay, we're going to go stock up on ammunition and guns and weapons, etc. But his kind of preparedness is knowing what he's prepared to give up and what he actually needs to keep. There's a lot of wisdom there. He knows the difference between what he needs and what he wants. Would he want to keep his shirt? I'm sure he would. But he also is not going to fight over it. He knows it's not worth it. So that recognition of what is and isn't worth fighting for, what is and isn't necessary to live, and then finding ways to prepare for those eventualities that don't lead to violence. It's not just thinking about what is the good as an abstract, it's about how can we practice it. For our next section here, we're going to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and expand our understanding of the world with an interesting fact of the week. Each week, one of us will share an interesting fact. We'll each have three chances to impress the other person. If we haven't been able to share an interesting fact, again, Phoenix will take the very easy punishment of eating a raspberry, while I will take the cruel and unusual punishment of eating a cherry. I don't understand this hatred of cherries. <sighs> it's because you're a monster. I'm the monster. Clearly. Clearly. So it's your turn this week. So Phoenix, interest me. So the other thing is, if you find my first fact interesting, then that's all that matters. If you don't, I will go on to the next one. And if you don't find that one remotely interesting, I will give you my third one. But 
You have to be honest about whether or not you find it interesting. And even if you already knew it, it's to find on if it's interesting. Yes. I like that we've previously defined this podcast episode around the negative spaces. And so I'm going to continue on with that with my fact. Did you know that blue pigment is exceedingly rare in nature? It stands to reason. And most of the time, even if there are blue creatures, they aren't actually blue. There is not a pigment that is making them blue, most of them. Blue morpho butterflies, for example, they look very, very blue. And you can look them up. They are strikingly iridescent blue, except they're not. They have a scale structure that acts the same way that the sky acts. They are refracting blue light out because the structure of the scale itself is trapping all other colors of light. And there's even a pigment underneath their scales that absorbs red and green light. Oh, weird. Yeah, so if you think about the butterflies that the Cathay is snapping out of existence, they're not actually blue. Blue morpho butterflies in themselves also, bonus fact, are found in the rainforest and have water repellent texture of their wings. But if you get them wet with rubbing alcohol, the refraction will stop happening the same way and they'll look this dull brown. That's pretty cool. Do I have to eat a raspberry? You do not. That's interesting. I'm legitimately interested by that. That was really cool. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Another one of the things that is a running theme throughout the books is that apparently Kvothe knows seven words to make a woman fall in love with him. Now, we've found that there are a lot of instances in the books of seven word sentences, and not all of them have to do necessarily with falling in love. We'd like to expand upon this and share with you seven words from the book each week and seven words outside of the book each week, again, taking turns. I've drawn the book straw this week. The seven words I've chosen is lovers have better eyesight than great scholars. Lovers have better eyesight than great scholars. And that was said by Bass <laughs> and is said as kind of a flip thing that gets him out of having to read Kellum Tintori. Kel- Tintori. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me why you picked those seven words. So I was thinking about it, and so there's something about to love someone is to know someone. And to know someone, you have to observe them and perceive them as they actually are. It's not just eyesight. This includes listening and feeling and observing their mood, their tone of voice, their words, and their behavior. To be a great lover, it's about understanding the specific, the particular, whereas being a great scholar is about knowing the general. If you think about the truly great lovers, they understand the particulars of their partner in a way that someone just operating from generals never really can. They're learning about that person as a whole person. Rather than as a theory. So my seven words are going to be something that we say in our actual real life. When we have the occasion to say a toast, I tend to say to one more day above the roses. 
which is a song lyric actually from Gaelic Storm, which helps me to remember that I am very happy to have spent one more day alive. And in some instances, this is a reminder that things change day to day and whether things get better or worse, I am very glad to have been alive for that one day above the roses. It's both hopeful and thankful. I agree. I always love it when you toast like that. Anytime there's a special occasion, it it always makes me smile because I always know that I get to spend another day above the roses with you. Aww. And now we've made half of our podcast audience vomit. So one of them. (laughs) With that, we come to our close. And so I'd like to thank you for potting with me. You're welcome. Thank you for potting with me. You're welcome. So join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 3 through 5 through the lens of unreliable narration. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Again, when you're not like all just like are you mocking me <laughs> are you mocking me you're mocking me this is my voice this is, this is always <laughs> how I talk okay <clears throat> la 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 la